Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. C-13 Originals. When I first came to Vermont, I looked at 12 colleges and I really picked coming to Burlington because of the vibe more than anything else, you know, more than what the school had to offer and et cetera. And it was the town and it was the lake and the way that the town and the lake interplayed and so much music and art going on in such a small town. And I was picking that up in my college visit and that's what did it for me. It was just vibe. And Two weeks later, it was answering the sign, Bass Player Needed. That's the same band from 36 years ago. But it was a feeling, and being in this town with a lot of culture, and then just 20 minutes out, you're in the mountains. And Fish is playing at fraternities and stuff in town and in clubs in town. But then 20 minutes out, we're at these parties where it's a pond at the foot of a mountain and some people have decided to live there and they've decided to call us and have us be their band. Talk about living in a dream. It's like a fairy tale of combing over these rolling hills that are beautiful and getting to the gig and setting up the bass amp in that context and then coming back to the town and going out to see some band in the club and then going out to some other party way out in the hills. Vermont is so much a part of Fish because it's backwoods, but then it's also frontwoods. That's Fish bassist Mike Gordon looking back on what led the Massachusetts native to attend college at the University of Vermont. As Mike indicates, just a few weeks after his first semester began, he met fellow musicians Trey Anastasio and John Fishman, with whom he continues to create exhilarating sounds 36 years later. In this episode, we're going to visit the Green Mountain State and examine the cultural, political, and social environment that gave rise to Fish. Then, to quote a few lyrics from Fish's song, The Curtain, we'll follow the lines going south as we consider the power of place. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. Mike Gordon entered the University of Vermont in the fall of 1983. He shortly connected with some fellow UVM students who were seeking out a bass player. And the rest, as they say, is fishery. Sorry, I hadn't used that one yet, and we're at episode nine. The band not only formed in Burlington, but all four members resided there during the group's formative period, and the group continues to record in the area. Still, if one considers the band's lyrics, there are very few direct reference points. The song Cavern does mention a picture of Nectar, alluding to Nectar Roris, who founded Nectar's, the restaurant and music venue that hosted Fish's early residencies. This line also supplies the title of Fish's 1992 Electra Records debut, which includes an image of Roris superimposed over an orange. Trey Anastasio looks back on this era 
Burlington was a little bit off the beaten path from what was going on culturally. Just if you think about the Wolf of Wall Street and Reagan, and there was a trend towards the commercial, the glossy, the big shoulder pads, money, money, money. That was the way the country was going. In the meantime, we were in Burlington. Our mayor, our little local mayor, was a guy named Bernie Sanders, who we all voted for. That was the beginning of his political path. We would do events where he was hanging around. There were a couple of guys making ice cream on the corner, a guy named Ben and a guy named Jerry. It was becoming a big company, but the original ice cream store, which was in this gas station in Burlington, was still running, and they were running it. They would come around, and we'd go buy Factory Seconds, and they had the original hand-cranked ice cream machine. There was a guy hanging around Goddard who was coming up with this idea to tie a rope to one ski and slide down the hill on it. This guy named Jake Burton, who was, you know, these are the people who were hanging around and he invented the snowboard. This was all happening in Burlington and there's more. Fish keyboard player, Paige McConnell, adds. I think it's actually pretty important that this is where we met and were able to form and sort of get it together. Burlington is a great town for lots of reasons. And one is that there were lots of clubs to play at and there were a lot of bands, but it wasn't like New York City, a lot of bands. It was like Burlington, Vermont, a lot of bands where if you wanted a gig, you could probably get a gig in a month. And because, you know, you're inside a lot during the winter, it's very cold, it allowed us to just focus and develop our thing and sort of quietly in our own little corner of the country. Burlington is not really on the way to anywhere. It's not a pass-through place. It's more of a destination. And people come here because they like the quality of life and because they like that it's not a big town. It's only about forty or 45,000 people here. And uh, it was a really wonderful place for us to develop and to get ourselves together. In episode one, we noted that Trey read a series of books while thinking about various ways to foster community at the band's festivals. One of these was Winifred Gallagher's The Power of Place, which is subtitled, How Our Surroundings Shape Our Thoughts, Emotions, and Actions. In fact, if you leaf through a copy of The Fish Book, published in 1998, and turn to page 70, you can see a copy of The Power of Place on the glass table where Trey is resting his feet. He draws on the spirit of that book as he further contemplates the environment in which fish originated. The other thing was that the drinking age was 18, and we were the last state where the drinking age became 21. The reason that's important is because there were more bars per capita in 1983 in Burlington than anywhere in America. 52 bars in Burlington. And they all wanted bands. So there was a very, very, very vibrant music scene. We were not the best band in town. There were bands everywhere of all kinds, intermingling with a visual art scene that was also very vibrant. There was painters and sculptors, and a lot of them have done album covers. One was Jim Pollock. I think the main thing was that we were in our own little community and infrastructure. There was Russ Bennett, who had worked with Bread and Puppet, who ended up doing our visual part of our festivals. There was Lars Fisk. There, these are all people we were bumping into. There was a community theater on Church Street, you know, blocked from our house. And my buddy Neil Pepe was doing community theater there. He has now started the Atlantic Theater Group in New York City. 
which is one of the two most important off-Broadway theaters in New York City, the other one being the public. And he ended up directing Hands on a Hard Body when I wrote the music for a Broadway play. One of the iconoclasts who settled down in Burlington was the aforementioned Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's fame. Ben looks back on his decision to move to the city, along with his junior high school friend, Jerry Greenfield, after Ben proved unsuccessful at selling pottery and Jerry couldn't get into med school. So we were both failures and we decided to go into the ice cream business and we wanted to live in a rural college town. And since it was ice cream, we were looking for a warm rural college town. But all the warm ones already had home in the ice cream shop, so we threw out the criteria of warm and ended up in Burlington. It was definitely serendipity, but I definitely knew Burlington and chose it because of the vibe of the town. You know, it's a very interesting place because it's a really small town, but it is the biggest city in Vermont and the biggest city in the surrounding region, including upstate New York. So it's a center, and of course it's a college town, and so it has a whole lot more culture, and it's not your typical little place. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, we get a lot of great music groups coming in, you know, because they're moving between Montreal and New York, or Montreal and Boston, and they're looking to fill in on a weeknight, and so we get a lot of things that big cities get, but yet we don't have to deal with all the hassles of a big city. It's a small town, and it's right on Lake Champlain, on a hill, mountains around, you know, the Adirondacks, the Green Mountains. We got it all, baby. Come on up. <laughs> but like we say, uh, we don't have to worry about too many people coming up because the winters keep the population down. Ben points to a political and cultural shift that took place in March 1981 when Bernie Sanders became mayor. Sanders would go on to serve three additional terms through 1989. In that first election, Sanders ran as an independent against Democratic candidate Gordon Paquette, who was part of an entrenched political machine. Sanders won by just 10 votes, appealing to members of the community who had been ignored or marginalized by the Paquette administration. Cohen highlights an issue that typified their contrasting approaches. We were located in this old gas station, and there was that area in front where the pumps used to be, and it was kind of available to sit in, and there was this big blank wall next to it. And we came up with the idea of having walk-in outdoor movies in the summer. And, you know, we hung up a big screen on that blank wall and people, you know, were encouraged to bring your own chair to Ben & Jerry's walk-in outdoor movies. They were free. And we needed the city to turn off one streetlight during the times we were showing the movies. And, you know, we went to the city council under Paquette and, you know, they were all saying, over my dead body, there's not going to be any free movies in the city of Burlington. Never. Not going to happen. No, we're not going to turn off the streetlight. And uh, that was the mentality that, no, you know, whereas Bernie's mentality was, let's find a way, why not? Their mentality was, no. Broadcast journalist Katie Turr, host of MSNBC Live, offers a few thoughts on the parallels between Sanders and the band that came of age while he was mayor. 
just on first glance, there's some crossover there. I mean, there's this idea that all for one and one for all, not individuals where you're all chasing your individual goal, regardless of anybody that's around you. A fish is a community. You lift each other up. They are unique in their personality. They have a very unique brand that is only theirs. Bernie Sanders has a very unique brand that is only his. And you hear a fish lyric or a fish melody, you know it's a fish melody, even though you don't know it's fish. When you hear Bernie Sanders talk, you know it's Bernie Sanders. He's very unique. They both have identities that they have stayed true to over the years. Katie is a notable fish fan whose book, Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History, chronicles her time on the road covering candidate Donald Trump. In it, she writes, I haven't really listened to the band in earnest since college. Now I find it is the only thing that can steady my nerves and slow my brain. It wasn't part of my daily routine any longer, and I fell away. And then when I was on the campaign trail, I was on it for 510 days. And around day 480, I was losing my mind. I mean, I had been to over 100 rallies, and every single one of them, they played the same seven songs. I mean, it was Backstreet Boys on repeat. It was Tiny Dancer on repeat and Rolling Stones, which are all fine individually. And when you're listening to the radio, but every day at 110 decibels, <laughs> it started to be a lot. And it was aggressive. The music was aggressive. The people were really aggressive at the time. They were really antagonistic towards the media. They were coming up to the pen and giving us the finger and telling us to die and all this stuff. And it was not chill at all. (laughs) And I needed to chill out. I was grinding my teeth. I was hunched over. I was like constantly gripping my fingers. And I was sitting on a plane and I was like, what can I do to calm myself down? I need to take a nap on this plane. How will I calm my brain? And I looked at my phone And I saw that I had Billy Breeze on my phone and I thought Billy Breeze has always been like such a good way for me just to cool it. So I put it in my ears. I put it as loud as it could go because the plane was still kind of loud. And I actually slept and it was nice. And I thought the next day when I was at the rally, this is the way that I will change my atmosphere. So when I'd go into these rallies and they were playing this music and everybody was really aggressive and angry, I would take my earphones and I would bury them into my eardrums and I'd play... Billy Breeze or I play Swept Away at top volume and the atmosphere changed in my head at least. It didn't feel as aggressive. It didn't feel as menacing and it allowed me to calm down. I Honestly, I kept my sanity in the last month and a half of the Trump campaign because I had this much more comforting, calming music, happy music inside my ears. Katie has since become well-known for seamlessly dropping fish references into her broadcasts. Here are a few examples drawn from Monday, August 7, 2017, the day after the Baker's Dozen run concluded at Madison Square Garden. Tonight, divided sky, the wind blows high in GOP country. Then there's Russia. In the last 100 days, Comey is out, Mueller is in. And it's getting harder to see how this White House will ever get out of this maze. 
Peter, he's tweeting again. Uh, he was tweeting this morning. His advisors want him to be silent in the morning. He's not doing that. The party's in crisis. Maybe so. Maybe not. Um, ladies, we're going to talk about Democrats coming up. Still ahead, the story of the ghosts of 2016 who are still haunting the Democrats. In March of 2017, she identified someone who could respond in kind and volley some fish lyrics back her way. Politico reporter Jake Sherman, who is an MSNBC political contributor. Here's Jake. Well, it was a complete random deal. I'm pretty public about my love for fish. It's on my Twitter bio. I've tweeted about fish. I sometimes get flack about it from people who say I'm sharing too much. But Katie was a fan, and I never knew that. And she's in New York, and I'm in D.C. She one day threw a fish lyric at me, and it kind of threw me back on my heels. So let's go to my friend, my friend, uh, Jake Sherman, who's on Capitol Hill right now. Jake, it feels like uh, Nunes's explanations have been changing by the day. Now he's saying that the White House was the only place that he could actually view the information. It's kind of dizzying. I'm having a tough time. I'm, I'm bouncing around the room a little bit in, in, with all of his explanations. Listen, we try to throw each other off. And sometimes he gets me and other times I get him. I had um, a congressman, Tom Reed from upstate New York. He represents where they were supposed to have the festival last year. Purple. And I think he said surrender to the flow. Clearly, I couldn't tell if he's an actual fish fan or if his staffers were prepping him. I would get a lot of lawmakers for a while. I guess they thought that I'd be nicer to them <laughs> if they came prepared with a fish lyric and they would throw it at me and I'd soften for a moment. Then I get back to my hard questioning. We kind of slowed down and it's a weird balance, right? Because we're talking about relatively weighty things sometimes, right? We're talking about people getting health care stripped from them or changes to federal spending or things that are going to impact people's lives. So we don't want to make light of it. But we feel like we could show that we're having fun just like fish could show that they're having fun with what they do. And although it's serious and weighty and has real world impact, we're humans and we have a shared interest and we're letting people know that we're kind of enjoying what we're doing and we're not spoiling anything. We're not acting like jerks. We're just showing people that we're having fun and kind of winking in a sense that like fish used to wink at its fans with, you know, signals during shows. We're winking at the people that are watching that either know that we're fish fans or don't know and find out quite quickly when they hear a lyric. It was really fun. And I don't know what's going on, but I think maybe just the weight of impeachment and the maternity leave. I've totally fallen off. And I was just thinking this morning as I was coming in to do the show that I got to get back on top of it. I got to have Jake Sherman on and I've got to just like beat him over the head with like four lyrics in a row. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. 
They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. In the fall of 1995, the fish office relocated from Lexington, Massachusetts to Burlington, Vermont. The new digs were a short bike ride from the bottling plant referenced in Harry Hood, another fish signature song with lyrics that are a direct product of the group's Burlington experience. In the mid-80s, the band members lived across from the H.P. Hood plant, which served the New England-based dairy company, whose slogan has long been, You Can Feel Good About Hood. In addition, from the 1970s through the 1980s, the company's TV ads featured a claymation milkman named Harry Hood, who seemingly resided in the refrigerator, where he dispensed advice to family members, all of which prompted the question, where do you go when the lights go out? Hey, give him a shake-up. You guys want a shake-up? Here's Harry in a rare moment outside of the fridge, sitting on the kitchen counter, hawking hood shake-ups. Hold on there. No need to rogue. Hey, Annie's got thick shakes right here at home. New hood shake-ups. Why leave home for a great thick shake? Good going, Harry. The final piece of the song was spurred by an errant piece of mail delivered to the band house addressed to a former tenant that included the phrase, Thank you, Mr. Minor. Thank you, Mr. Minor. As for the move to Burlington, John Paluska, who was then Fish's manager, recalls, It was helpful early on for me to be in Boston, which was a major music market, and around a music scene like that. And it was our most important market early on. So in the early going, it was really valuable to be there. But it became increasingly important to be near the band and to established kind of a, a home base headquarters up there and things had been percolating. Frankly, in some ways, I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen sooner, but it seemed like a no-brainer once it happened. There's a certain energy to Burlington and to Vermont, and they were very proud of being from Vermont. That was something they wore proudly. It wasn't something they apologized or, well, we're kind of from Boston. No, we're from Vermont. It was distinctive and noteworthy and all those countless gigs up there on people's farms and in backyards and, you know, all that kind of stuff, that stuff doesn't happen in Boston, you know? There's a different energy in a rural place like that and all kinds of things happen and opportunities happen and scenes happen that don't happen in Boston or New York City. The move to Vermont helped Beth Rolls make a decision. She was then working in the offices of Boston-based promoter Don Law. In fact, she was there in 1989 when Fish rented out the Paradise and sold out the venue. Jody Goodman was the booker for the Paradise at the time. And I do remember Jody coming in and being like, does anyone know who this band Fish is? You know what I mean? Like, they just sold out the Paradise last night. It was like a mob scene, apparently. In 1995, 
Beth's boss recommended her to Paluska, who offered her a job. Beth was on the fence until she learned of the imminent relocation. And that changed everything for me because I am a big outdoors person and a skier, and I was a competitive freestyle skier at the time. And I was literally driving to Vermont every single weekend. And John knew that about me. So I think he knew that it would potentially be a good match for me. And I remember it very clearly going back to my apartment that night after going out with John and saying to my roommate, I think I'm going to take this job. I think I'm going to do this. Because I totally didn't think I was going to before that happened. Beth, who is now married and goes by Beth Montori Rolls, is still there nearly 25 years later. Her responsibilities have come to include a variety of tasks, serving as general manager for the band's in-house record label, handling the logistics for music publishing, which is important for live fish, and also overseeing the group's nonprofit Waterwheel Foundation. The story of Waterwheel is entwined with Ben and Jerry's fish food ice cream. I think they came to us because Cherry Garcia was a hit for them, and I think they had just gotten into this licensing thing and understood how it works. I think they put Cherry Garcia out first and then found out that they needed to get some sort of license for it. And then they came to Fish and said, we want to do this flavor. And they tried a couple of different things. I remember them coming into the office with tubs of ice cream, having us try them to see which ones we liked best. Ultimately, it was up to the band, but we employees got to enjoy that as well. Shelley Culbertson, who we met in episode five, was also working in the office at that time, focusing on mail order ticketing. She has sweet memories of the project. The folks from Ben & Jerry's would come in with uh, cooler and dry ice and samples of the candidates for fish food, and we would sit in the conference room and taste the samples and, you know, comment on them and decide on which ones we liked. And, you know, we had to have a lot of these meetings because it was a really important topic. (laughs) There was a version of it that was like a vanilla malted ice cream that had like malt balls in it. And that was the one that I liked, but I got overruled. (laughs) Beth adds, I remember that there was one that was like maybe peanut butter and jelly or something like that. Had graham crackers in it and jelly. It was kind of weird. Anyways, fish food was easily the overall winner. It took a while for them to figure out how to make the fish. And it took even longer for them to figure out how to make the marshmallow. And then the marshmallow went on to win some sort of frozen food award because prior to fish food coming out, marshmallow in a frozen ice cream was frozen marshmallow-flavored ice cream versus something that had the texture of marshmallow. Ben Cohen had been looking to make a flavor with marshmallow for some time. He was happy to finally see this come to pass in conjunction with the Burlington-based group, who had invited him, along with his business partner Jerry, to take the stage at the Clifford Ball. Ben looks back on that moment. They were rock stars. I mean, they are rock stars. We just saw ourselves as little struggling ice cream guys. And it was amazing that they asked us to come up on stage. I remember it well. Uh, you know, they decided we were going to come on for Brother, 
They were saying, you know, the fans are going to love it because they very rarely play Brother. And we were rehearsing it backstage. And, you know, we had one line. Well, you know, the song doesn't have that many <laughs> different lyrics. <laughs> we had one line. Oh, somebody's coming in the tub with my brother or something like that. And we couldn't get it right. And I probably still didn't have it right. <laughs> and, you know, we're practicing it backstage. I mean, it's one line we're trying to practice. And, you know, finally they said, strong and wrong. That's our motto. And as for the proceeds of fish food. You know, we wanted the flavor to have a social benefit. And Fish picked the Waterwheel Foundation that benefits Lake Champlain. You know, Lake Champlain suffers from pollution, from runoff, farm runoff, septic runoff. There was a situation in Burlington where the storm sewers, you know, end up going into the lake. And when it rains a lot, a lot of bad stuff goes into the lake. Waterwheel came out of a couple of different things. One was Ben and Jerry's creating this ice cream flavor and the band members wanting the royalty to have some meaning to it and choosing cleaning up Lake Champlain. And then a couple of years before that, they were opened up for Santana and Santana had Greenpeace on the road with him. And they just really got into that idea. And so we had Greenpeace on tour with Fish. And at the same time that this Ben and Jerry's thing was happening and Fish Food was becoming a reality for a launch, Greenpeace stopped their artist touring initiative. And so Mike and Henry, who were the two Greenpeace guys, came to us and said, hey, can we maybe keep doing this? But instead of all the money going to one thing, we can have it go wherever the band members want. And the band said, let's give it back to the communities that we're in that night. And so we created the touring division that just sort of by coincidence happened at the same time that we were launching Fish Food. And also the band already had a history of giving locally in our community, but it just wasn't something that was really public. Not purposely private, but it wasn't a formalized thing. They were just making donations out of Fish Inc., out of their touring company at the end of the year. So that made it so that we could formalize this whole thing. Mike came up with a list of names, and uh, the Waterwheel Foundation was launched sort of in conjunction with the Ben & Jerry's Fish Food in March of that year, 97. The Waterwheel Foundation maintains its Lake Champlain Initiative, donating a percentage of the royalties from fish food to support the health of the lake and its watershed. In addition, the Waterwheel Touring Division has provided over $1 million in funds to over 500 groups that align with the band's tour stops, assisting with the variety of needs from social services through environmental causes. On Saturday, April 14, 2012, Fish and Ben and & Jerry's celebrated the 15th anniversary of both Waterwheel and Fish Food by breaking the record for largest cowbell ensemble. This was fitting for a few reasons, including the fact that as Ben Cohen notes, You know, for a while, right up until about the time we got here, you know, there were more cows than people in Vermont. So for an ice cream company to be located in this state that's known for its dairy products and its 
bucolic fields. Yeah, that was, I guess, serendipity too, but it really worked. So the 15th anniversary of fish food, it was one of those things where I got in touch with Ben and Jerry's and said, how are we going to celebrate this? And they said, well, we have some money that we haven't spent for Burlington promotions. Maybe we can do something with that. And I said, all right, let's come out with something that's like participatory. So I kind of went to the Guinness Book of World Records online and started looking at stuff and found, I don't can't remember what it was, but it was like 360 people, cowbells in unison. And I was like, we can beat that. So I sent Fishman an email and asked him if he would be interested in maybe putting together a band so that we could try to break this record in Burlington. And uh, he was like, how many people this was it? And I was like, whatever it was, it was very low, 300 and something. And he was like, yeah, I think we can do that, right? I'm like, if we can't do that, we have a big problem on our hands. <laughs> yeah, I, I always forget about that, but people never let me forget that one. No, yeah, that was one of those... Am I really going to get to do this? Am I really going to have the opportunity to reenact the amazing Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell, Christopher Walken skit with the cowbell? Am I really going to get to do that? Am I going to get to stand there with my paunch and take my t-shirt and tie it in a knot and around my belly and and bang a cowbell and shake my ass like Will Ferrell. Am I really going to get to do that on Church Street in Burlington in front of thousands of people? The last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a good album you go back to every once in a while. And then, you know, so when they told me, when Beth told me that this was happening, and it was like a water wheel, Ben and Jerry's, Thing and it was we we're gonna actually try to set a Guinness World. Re- Did it actually set the Guinness World Record? Over sixteen hundred people joined in. And Mr. John Fishman on the cowbell, which would have broken the record, but that also would have meant Guinness certifying the record, which involved plane travel and expenses billed to Waterwheel. It was like this is a charitable event. We're not gonna pay ten thousand dollars that could go to a charity instead out of what this event's going to make to get this certified. We'll just take the bragging rights out of it. That's right. And that's Beth in a nutshell right there. I love that. That's why she is running Waterwheel. Because, you know, she's like, we're here to raise money for education and the environment. I'm going to go pay Guinness to just make the record. But as far as I'm concerned, that's a world record. might not be an official world record. But yeah, so we're raising money for a good cause. You get to go stand on stage and reenact Will Ferrell. How about it, you know? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm game. Oh, that was a fun day. Yeah. Fish came of age in Burlington. The band was part of a special community at an ideal time within an environment that helped nurture the group. The band has also made an effort to give back to that community with its charitable endeavors. But just when one might be ready to acknowledge Fish's unadulterated Green Mountain DNA, it's important to consider New York City. It's a major media market where the band has been able to thrive over the years 
building its following from Kenny's Castaways, through Wetlands Preserve, to Roseland Ballroom, to the Beacon Theater, and on to Madison Square Garden, where Fish played the 13 nights of the Baker's Dozen in addition to regular four-show New Year's Eve runs. The statistics on the Fishnet indicate that the group has performed at MSG more than any other venue, although it's quite possible that Nectar's still holds the crown since many of those early shows remain unrecorded. Well, you know, everybody wants to play in New York, and you can't understate what it feels like to be playing in New York. It's very special, and it's unique, and it all feels so big and exciting. Page lived there for a period of time, as did Mike Gordon, although both have long since returned to the Burlington area. However, Trey Anastasio is a current Manhattan resident who points to the import of the city. I mean, I'm going to speak for myself. Huge influence. New York. I took my first guitar lessons in New York. I grew up in New Jersey. My mom, who was a lifetime New Yorker in the 50s, went to public school in New York and lived on the east side. She would encourage me to come in. And I got guitar lessons, I think it was up on Central Park South with this guy. So I used to come into the Penn Station in 1976, probably, alone with my little guitar. And I remember I was just old enough, I was just starting to try coffee. <laughs> and I'd have a big coffee and then walk through Times Square to get to Central Park South. And it was crazy back then. If you ever look at pictures of Times Square in 1976, I loved it, loved it. Just all of it, the seedy, crime-ridden danger. And that's where I took my first guitar lessons. But now that I've lived here for 14 years, what I would say is that whenever I come off tour, I'll walk around the city a lot, and my wife and I walk. And, you know, you're walking, and as you're walking, you're like, oh, there's where Duke Ellington played. Oh, there's where Gershwin composed Porgy and Bess. Oh, there's Leonard Bernstein Avenue, you know. Or, oh, there's my daughter lives out in Queens now, so you walk through. Oh, there's where Nas, you know, made Illmatic, you know. And, oh, there's where the Ramones were playing. Oh, there's where Patti Smith was playing. And there's... Talking Heads used to play right there. That used to be CBGB's. And there's the New York Philharmonic. There's where Miles Davis played in the 50s. There's where Bob Dylan played. You know, it's crazy. And it gets your head screwed on straight in terms of perspective. Trey's mother was a Broadway enthusiast and passed that zeal down to her son, along with the original Broadway cast recordings of West Side Story, Hair, South Pacific, and Gypsy. West Side Story was the one that I played the most. And it had a huge effect on the divided skies and you enjoy myself and the Colonel Forbins and the foams and the Rebas and the no question. Because it was, I'm not saying that I made a successful attempt, but I remember as a young child listening to the finale of West Side Story where Tony dies and she's leaning over him and you hear the theme comes back. And the bass note I know today is like a tritone away from. It doesn't resolve. You've heard this theme earlier in the piece, but this time it's so heart-wrenching. And at the very end of the play, it's genius. It's some of the most genius music ever written, Leonard Bernstein. The bass note is dissonant from the melody. And even as a small child, I was like, why? Ah, this is hurting my heart. Why? And I learned from that that you can milk a melody 
by reharmonizing underneath it, there's ways that you can squeeze emotion out of music without lyrics, just with arrangement, just with an elegant handling of the melody. And I'd learned that from listening to West Side Story when I was a kid, and I've always been chasing it my whole life. Always, in everything I've ever worked on. You know, this beautiful song of hope, there's a place for us, and then he dies, it's over, there's no hope left. And he plays the theme again, and just reharmonizes the bottom so that it's dissonant now. It used to be a consonant ending, and now it's dissonant. And it's just tears streaming. And that had a big effect on the music of Fish. Like I said, I'm certainly not sitting here saying that it reached that level or anything like that, but it was a signpost to the storytelling power of music. Even if you're taking a solo at a jam, there's times when I'll try to not resolve. If we're going on a musical journey in a jam, I try not to do this consciously, but I think by now it's become part of my vocabulary that based on that lesson that I learned from listening to West Side Story, that I'll try not to resolve the journey of a solo and sit on the one chord, even just with the slope that I'm doing with the melody when we're playing, I'll veer towards an area that's still unresolved, musically and harmonically, in a jam, because I want to be in that mixed place of emotion. I love that feeling of confusion, emotional confusion. And like I said, sometimes even if it's like the Ruby Waves jam or something like that, you think, oh, this is coming to a place of conclusion. I'll kind of purposely point the needle towards that space where things don't resolve. Because that's always been what I loved. Still, ultimately, Trey makes a point of connecting New York City with Burlington. Vermont is a very fascinating place because there's two Vermonts. Well, there's probably many Vermonts, but there are in some ways two Vermonts. It's a rural farm community. It's also the place in the 60s and 70s where people from New York, you know, going to the country, that whole thing, that's where they were going. It was, you know, Woodstock, which is halfway to Vermont in a car or up to Vermont. So again, Bernie Sanders was our mayor in 1982-83, he was saying exactly the same thing he's saying today in 1983. It gives you a picture of the political climate, and there was a connection in my mind to New York. And it always felt connected to me. The art scene in New York, the art scene in Vermont, connected. And like I said, there was this cross-referencing between a local, rural community and an artsy, escape-to-the-land hippie community that manifested itself in Bread and Puppet, in some of these musicians going up there, in a lot of visual artists. And so it was kind of in the air. And I think as the music scene in popular music started to trend towards the ultra-commercial 80s and away from the arts-based late 70s, the Vermont scene was unaware of everything else that was going on and just lived by its own rules. Indeed, Vermont is a place where iconoclasts can thrive in multiple settings, both backwoods and frontwoods. 
for me, it feels like a lot. And sometimes it's hard to put it into words with how much Fish took from Bread and Puppet, with all of what they mixed, music and political theater and puppets and nature and bread, (laughs) all in the woods of the Northeast Kingdom here. And for so many years, the cult from the Northeast Kingdom, you know, would come and bring their bus and come on tour and keep this Vermont connection alive. And there's a lot. And, you know, I got to have lunch with Ben from Ben and Jerry's, Ben Cohen recently. It's just great. We had no agenda. And it's just talk about a Vermonter who and what he's envisioning. He has all these ideas of ways to kind of do different things in the community here and bringing the technology together with the art and the people and the lake and the city. And it's just talk about another person who's just like a real Vermonter who's kind of embracing what's cool about Vermont. It's just inspiring. On the final episode of Long May They Run, Season 1, we'll dig further down into the enduring legacy of fish. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C-13 Originals, executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season 1 is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Perry Crowell, mixed and mastered by Chris Basil, Production coordination by Terrence Malingone and production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney, press by Hilary Schuff, and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.